unbeknownst to me, the friend of mine was a little bit of a hack, you'd say. Smartest dumb guy you ever met, but he cut a lot of corners to get the job done. He said, you know, my buddy Chris, race car driver, race car mechanic, my buddy Chris, my buddy Chris. I get in there, it's like, oh, for Christ's sakes. But then they see the work I did, it's like, oh, you know, one of these things is not like the other. Ingratiated myself that way by just doing a fine job. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jada Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. It's a Friday night. We are recording in Canada with a fellow Canadian. Uh, there's going to be a, a trend of that more and more, as you see. Uh, we're slowly taking over. I'm recording tonight with um, a gentleman I don't know too well, but reached out to me through the podcast posting about wanting people to to put their hands up and, and be a guest. So I have uh, Christopher Johnson with me tonight. Christopher, how are you? Well, not too bad yourself. Uh, I'm getting good, man. The, the weather here is beautiful. It's a long weekend for us, right? Absolutely. Thank Christ for that. <laughs> I'm looking forward to trying. The weather's supposed to hold for the weekend, so I'm hoping to get out and get fishing all three days. If my if my shoulder will hold up to it, then I'll be yeah. good. But yeah, you're in Coburg. I work in Coburg. I live in Colburn, which is the next yeah. you know town over, the next affordable borough li- over. Yeah. Which is so just down just down the road from you, yeah. Which for the people not familiar, probably about an hour from me. Would you say an hour from Kingston? A little, uh, bit a little over an hour, probably closer to an hour and a half ish. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, past Peterborough, but before Toronto. Yeah, that kind of area. So well, not directly Peterborough. directly south of Peterborough. Yeah, Fort Hope kind of area. So, and you work at a Mazda dealer. That I do. I'm the shop foreman uh, there. I mean, there's only four of us working in the back. Plus our detailer. We got two apprentices, one young licensed tech. He's just been licensed for just over a year. Then uh-huh. myself, that's been uh, grinding away for the last 20 years wow. professionally. Yeah, yeah. How big is the shop? We have four hoists now. We did have three, and we had a dry bay, so we turned that into an extra hoist for our EV as well, and okay. an alignment rack, a sunken alignment rack. So, right. And our detail bay, so very small. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, cause for that area, that's not one of the, the larger dealers that are starting to prop up or pop up around, right? Like they're No, we're probably the second smallest. I think the Kia dealer just up the road from us is smaller yet they have you know four hoists mm-hmm. and no alignment rack and right. we're the next one up from there but we do a comparable amount of work to say the next uh, asian car dealer next to us okay uh, which is a honda dealer with you know a little over half their staff right so we, we turn a lot of work and we do a lot of good work and it's good and you've been there 20 years I've, I've been in the business in the area for 20 years. So I started as a, as probably the American listeners wouldn't know, we have the co-op. Yeah. So I went to high school, but I, I finished late in high school. That's a, a different story altogether, but went through the co-op program. Uh, but even that was different for me. I helped a guy open a shop from scratch. So as we were literally, 
as a co-op student, it was a friend of my dad's. Right. So we worked a deal that way. So, but we were running plumbing lines. We were running airlines, installing stuff. I helped them open that. So that was a bit of a wild and wacky experience as to getting the firsthand knowledge of working on cars. So for my American friends, what co-op is referred to up here is where essentially you would go in and work. Like sometimes you worked, say your morning, and then you went to a job placement, we'll call that in the afternoon or some days you would stagger. So you might do two days at the school doing traditional classroom classes, and then you would do a couple days away at this job placement, which was trying to, to help people pick careers. It wasn't always trade heavy. You could, if you wanted to work in a culinary, if you wanted to do, they would try and place you in a, in a position to get your real world on the job experience. You didn't normally get paid. Some people did, some people didn't. But it was mostly accounted towards your curriculum, your credits to graduate high school. And then um, it got your feet wet for uh, what you wanted to do tentatively when you're, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old and not sure. So that's what that's what co-op is. If you hear us refer to it, that's what co-op is. Just consider it job placement for the most part. So. so you took a friend of your father's, was starting a shop from scratch, and you kind of got in and decided to help him do that. Yeah, because uh, before that, I kind of wanted to get into, I was doing some ice racing, which okay. um, we do up, live up north in Minden. Yep. I wanted to race cars. Uh, that was my thing. And of course, I had no money to do some race cars, so I got to learn how to do it myself. And right. it snowballed for 20 years. <laughs> so I got in, wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, when you use a friend of your father, so anyone in the family into the into the industry like was it as a tech or just you grew up around race cars is that kind of nope not even that um because i didn't even get my driver's license until you know probably almost a year or so after you know you would normally do that mm-hmm. didn't think i don't want to drive got no use for that yeah playing playing indoor soccer one year and broke my leg so then i'm sitting oh. sitting in the base or uh, sitting in our back room I want to say it was a spring and flip through the channels champ car race. I want to say it was Detroit, but when I watched that, like then I've been watching it ever since right. <laughs> I've stopped watching racing since. Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah, got hooked and hard. Yeah. It's a common thread. Everybody's a lot of us are, are into the motorsports thing. So, so you just a friend of your father starting a shop. What was his background? Then this, can I call him a mentor? Is that a fair? Uh, he was, I did learn quite a bit mm-hmm. from him. He was, he has always been a mechanic. I think he'd been in the military and right. was a, uh, working at an auto shop that my parents used to use. Then he, okay. then he tried to break out on his own to do a work in a small shop. I don't know where he's gone to nowadays. Cause that yeah. didn't last much more than a few years and disappeared into obscurity. His shop did. It failed. Yeah, him, him, and uh, I, I don't know where he actually went to. Yeah, his shop did uh, eventually. But fail you got, and went to work for someone else. But that's how you got your feet wet in the industry was with him in co-op. Yeah, that yeah. Then once I got into an actual apprenticeship program, it was at the local Honda dealer. Yeah. He was the owner was a friend of a friend, so I got in there as a, an apprentice and learned quite a few more things. Yeah, uh, it was a bit of a you know kind of 
felt a little bit like a duck out of water because, but I've always felt like that going anywhere. So, yeah. um, because the duck out of water thing is that because of the fact that you come from a smaller independent in your co-op and then you get into a dealership. Yeah, and then it's now the man. I got to do this for a living now. I got to make some money at that. I mean, I was still living at home. I had you know no bills to pay, mm-hmm. so it was no matter what, just at least a good learning experience and yeah, make minimum wage, but. It was a good learning experience and made a lot, made some good friends there as well. So they started you at minimum wage at the, at the, at the Honda dealer. Yeah. I think back then it was like eight bucks an hour, you know, early, early two thousands. Yeah. Was, that was what it would have been about. Yeah. Seven, eight dollars. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so they had you working on cars for minimum wage. Yeah. Pretty well. You're doing, doing oil changes and, and mm-hmm. the slow times you're doing, you know, I'm getting the ride lawnmower from the boss's house or something or <laughs> delivering yeah. bits here and there. So you're yeah. doing whatever is necessary in the building. And so how long, how long did you stay there? I was there. I did the, when I was an apprentice there, I did the day release. So I did the, for mm-hmm. the full day release and I was about to go off that winter for the two, the block program because day release right. is terrible. Yes. Don't learn a damn thing. Don't remember a damn thing. You, yeah. You spend the entire next time you're there remembering what the hell you learned the last week. <laughs> so again, to, to for my American friends, what he means by day release is when we do our what we call our apprenticeship program up here. You can do it two ways, which is you can get you can do it one day a week, where you leave the job and you go to normally a local community college and you'll sit through a day of classes, and that can take like six months to go through or longer in some cases I've heard of you sit there one day a week, sit through all your classes. So our classes will be, you know, depending on the level, but fuel, electrical transmission, like driveline, uh, safety and workplace have hazards practices, all that kind of stuff. When you go day release, it is notoriously the success rate is not so good because you, you tend to stay focused on the job, what you had at the shop waiting for you when you go back. I never had to do it. I was always in the, I think there were 16 week blocks. So four months at a time. And I would go and that was easier for me to stay focused. It was hard because now you're leaving, you're being laid off from the the job essentially. Right. And you go work in the shop, which, so a lot of employers don't, they prefer day release because up here, what happens a lot is they just want you to like, get your certification so that legally you can work in the shop. And uh, if you're enrolled as an apprentice, you can, your pay can sometimes be subletted by the government, which is good or bad, depending on how you want to look at it. So that's what he means by day releases. Well, he's going one day a week. So sorry to interject there, Chris. I just wanted to keep everybody, you know, uh, that isn't a Canadian. (laughs) They're going to be like, what are they talking about? Yeah. He went through the day release program for that was your first year. Yeah, did the first year of that, then as I was about to go to my second second year, so the block program, yeah. I was just about to leave and was told that I wasn't coming back, but that I think that was in the works for a little bit before that. I'd made some mistakes, like I'd left some, you know, left some oil leaks. I think in the last straws I left an oil plug, drain plug okay. loose. I, I blew up an engine. I fucked up. Yeah. And you're not the first one. Oh no. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I think before that had already been replaced by someone else mm-hmm. but they were just waiting for the bay to be free right well, but and once i uh 
once I finished that block program, I went, I think it was three weeks at a Mercedes Volvo dealer up in Peterborough. Ooh. I said three weeks. I wasn't happy up there for the, after the first two weeks. Yeah. Replied to an ad at a race shop over okay. at Mosport or Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, as people yeah. know now. But And as I was loading my trailer, my box, into my trailer from the Mercedes, got the phone call. <laughs> when can you start? Well, mm-hmm. I can come over there right now because I'm mobile. <laughs> yeah. Right now. So, uh, and that started a seven-year career as a race car mechanic. Wow. Right on. I learned a I learned a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot yeah. of good stuff there. Yeah, it's about, found out a lot of bad things, but that's not what we were doing. But yeah, a lot about that business as well. But yeah, it's, that was a that was a like a mechanic and wrenching experience and a work ethic experience uh-huh. that is hard to uh, hard to replicate anywhere else. Yeah, the amount of work ethic we've developed doing that and to be able to do that on a regular basis. Um, you know, people are paying for race weekends. We're we got paying clients in cars and we're taking care of customer cars and racing them all weekend. And if we're down south, we've got, you know, schedules to keep. Yeah. And which people are paying for us. So and then you re- learn to prioritize how you're working and getting stuff done efficiently and working as a team. And that's where a lot of the core values I've got now as a regular, like a streetcar mechanic yeah, yeah. comes from that and keeps that. And that's, yeah, it's the attention to de- it's the attention to detail, right? That that is so. I want to say carries over so well from motors motorsports into into the everyday wrenching, right? I think that's kind of yeah. You know, even if you're not necessarily because not every race car is is super fast. I mean, that's why I have to remember some classes are not all that quick. I mean, they're they're fun, but you know, but it's still a situation of you know details matter to finish in the race or not finish in the race, right? Yeah, like I've, I've got a five thousand dollar Honda that I used to race. We mm-hmm. beat the crap out of Porsches and yeah. BMWs and whatnot. But yeah, <laughs> the same attention to detail to that five thousand dollar car is same that we spend on our two hundred fifty three hundred thousand dollar yeah Trans Am series cars. Exactly. Like so, you're working on a lot of high end cars at that point, like high dollar stuff. Most of the work when I started there was we had a lot of vintage Corvettes and mm-hmm. we had. Uh, C5 Corvettes, mostly all custom race builds. So all the old C3s that we had were all race cars since yeah. they were C3s. So they were all vintage yeah. and mostly owned by the owner of the shop. But we did have a lot of other cars drop in mm-hmm. and out. Then a few years down the road into that, it developed into a bit of a bigger race shop with a couple other owners coming in. Okay. And we started to build a lot of Trans Am series race cars, which are two frame chassis, yeah, you know, silhouette body, big fire breathing monsters, and yeah, fantastic, yeah, right on. <laughs> it's it's funny, or it's actually kind of sad in some ways that that stock car has never really taken off as big in Canada, right? As as like you know, because I mean, it's not for we got lots of talented talented drivers. And, um, oh, absolutely. you know, it's not a situation of, I just think that in, we, it, I don't know why, <laughs> I don't know why I have a friend and her, uh, her son races, uh, Cascar does really well, but it's a struggle when you talk to them. Like you think that they're, oh, they're getting paid really good. Like, no, they're, they're barely, they're looking for sponsors every weekend just to get the tires on the car. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, or the it's a ticket to get in. <laughs> yeah. It's a different thing. So. 
it's too bad. The Corvette classes and all that stuff, I'd never, I'm not, a, I'll be totally honest. I'm not a, I'm not a motorsports guy. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's always like the money has always been something that has been like, I just, I just can't justify that expense. I mean, I, it's like anything else. If you love it, you love it, right? People look and it's like, yeah. why would you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a bass boat to catch fish out of, well, you know, nobody's ever not smiling in a bass boat, but it's the same in a race car. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just whatever you're, whatever you're into. So the detail thing, how did that, did you, was it, did you have an adjustment period when you, cause you moved on from that into back to a traditional kind of wrenching experience? job yeah back in about i want to say the end of 2013 uh the race shop was getting bought up by different owners and the owners that i was working for were splitting ways and i didn't want to necessarily stay with who was staying with and i couldn't go with the owner i wanted to go with there just wasn't the room and he set up his own business and that's all he does right now is as a race car business Mm -hmm. but uh at the time there wasn't it wasn't for me it wasn't it wasn't my cards yeah so to speak then uh at least luckily before that i had already finished my third year then went to write my ticket Mm -hmm. a couple years before that so i got my ticket in 2011 right i said i'm gonna need something to fall back on i'm gonna need or just in case or if something's change and lo and behold they did need that and that's you know save my bacon so i could go into a earn a living again yeah what he means by ticket is like what we call it our ticket up here is is our our trade license that we have to have in order to be employed legally anyway as a technician in the shop it it, it's government obviously government sponsored government funded government regulated by province some provinces have slightly different, but it's all pretty much the same. Quebec is it's is the wild wild west. Um, it's a wide open thing there. They don't recognize it, um, and it always has been that way in Quebec. I've spent they don't so, recognize a lot of things. Yeah, <laughs> that's not hating on them. They're they're great no, people. No, it's just, just a, it's a different yeah different culture there. So what he means when he says ticket is it's just our legal license that we need to stay in good standing with, to be employable. The license pretty much in the end of it means is that um, when a car has to be inspected to be deemed safe for sale, um, you have to have a license. And then if you're working in a shop that's performing safety-related repairs, you're supposed to be a licensed technician, or you're supposed to be an apprentice that's enrolled within the system that has the work checked over by a licensed technician. That's what he means by ticket. So if you hear me say ticket, that's all I mean is just our license. So it's important what he's saying is when you're coming out of the, if you don't get one, it, and there are guys without a ticket working in the industry, without a license in our in our province and in our country, they traditionally don't make a whole lot of money and they're constantly kind of looking over the shoulder to make sure that somebody doesn't come and knock on the door. And, uh, you know, I've worked with a couple of them in shops that had to transition out of working as mechanics into an admin role because they legally couldn't be on the shop floor working. So that's, that's the difference between up here. It's kind of the equivalent of saying you couldn't get hired without an ASE would be, I guess is what you could say, from the American standpoint is if you have to don't have an ASE certification, you can't work. 
that's kind of what they're saying up here. Um, when we pass our exam, we're not recognized as ASC certified because it's a different thing, but uh, it's a level of competency. You have to pass the test. So very important in this industry that you have that up here. Otherwise, you're not getting a job. So, mm. yeah. That pretty much means that you've at least have a, a working knowledge of cars as I was five years out of working on street cars when I got my license mm-hmm. and I passed with like an 81 or 80 some yeah. odd percent. Yeah. Uh, and there was hybrid questions on there and hybrids didn't really exist when I yeah. worked in cars. Right. Worked in the car side or uh, street car side. Yeah. So you got out of the race shop. Where did you go? I went to, uh, I was living in up in Peterborough. So just yeah. north of us here, but for say half an hour north yeah. of uh, Port Hope. Uh, at a Honda dealer there because a friend of mine worked there, um, got in contact with him. I'd known him from hanging back out here in Coburg. I'd hang out with friends at the Timmy's because that's yep. what we do here when you have yep. nothing to do. Yep. <laughs> it doesn't and, matter where uh, you go in Canada, right? Every Tim Hortons, it used to be back in the day anyway, if you had, if you were a car guy, Tim Hortons is a coffee and donut shop for people that don't know, but by now everybody should know. You've all heard me enough. so. The way that used to be is that you would hang around the coffee shop, Tim Hortons, Friday nights, Saturday nights, sometimes Sunday nights, sometimes Thursday night, and um, just lean up on your car and, you know, shoot the shit and talk crap to other people that tell them their rod was slow or whatever. And a lot of street racing in our up here, you know, kind of that was the scene, I guess, is where you might hang out. And, you know, street racing is not as wasn't as big here as obviously you know the hotbed california oklahoma that kind of stuff where we'd be but we did have the toronto area which you know christopher's not that far from at one point we had some of the absolute fastest front wheel drive hondas that were in on the continent so i can't remember the one but they he was one of the first hondas to go in the eights i think um they did it shot a documentary years ago about it i'm the name escapes me, but yeah, he had a white one clapped out thing, but it was stupid fast. He made a lot of money racing that car around Toronto and the, every cop knew that car. So that's what Tim Hortons and the car culture is up here in Canada. So every small town, Ontario is every small town, Ontario. They're all kind of the same. They all have a pizza shop, a couple of Timmy's and it's the same people hanging out yep. in the same places. It's <laughs> yeah, your muscle car guys, you're hot rod or your hondas your asian import guys yeah and you got the old folks coming in and out getting their coffee yeah complaining about how full the parking lot is with nobody buying anything yeah yeah, yeah. every town they're so, all the same <laughs> yeah so that was kind of that's how you found the the job at the at the honda dealership was through that kind of yeah a buddy of mine that i knew from actually as an apprentice we were an apprentice together at uh cobra honda and mm-hmm. he made his way up to Peterborough. Was working as a licensed tech up there, so he got me the in there. I got the interview, and got the job, and that was a a very good experience. It was initially I had a bit of a target on my back because, unbeknownst to me, the friend of mine was a little bit of a hack. You'd say oh, the smartest okay. dumb guy, smartest dumb guy you ever met. But he cut a lot of corners to get the job done. Yeah, and he said, "You know, my buddy Chris, race car driver, race car mechanic." My buddy Chris, my buddy Chris, and I get in there. It's like, oh, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> but then they see the work I did. It's like, oh, you know, one of these things is not like the other. And uh, ingratiated myself that way by just doing a 
fine job. So that was a wake up call for you to work for him, work with him, excuse me, and realize that like he was way different about how he approached the the job than you. Yeah, but the working job made a way he treated his own cars to get around. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's one thing. But the way you treat a customer's car is um, should be something entirely different. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't him. It was almost worse. But Wow. Uh, that's the way he chose to make a living. That's certainly not the way I chose to make a living. Mm-hmm. Like he was, he's actually kind of a good, like diagnostic tech and a good tech. He could find things out very quickly just yeah. to get to the end end game, cut quite a few corners. And that never flew with me because we couldn't do that in race cars. Mm-hmm. You're going to kill someone if you do that. And he, he lacked refining is what you're saying. So, Yes. Now, is it fair to say that might have been because of the difference in background? Like, had he been a flat rate mechanic a lot or always like pushed by the clock? And because I'm not trying to say that motorsports and race cars doesn't have time schedule. Right. But I mean, you're kind of given a little bit more time. Right. It's about precision and and detail, like we talked about. Was he just that way because that's what the, the clock made him that way? Or is he just. I think he made himself that way with. The way I know the other techs in that shop, and uh, a few of them are still there, and they're great techs. Mm-hmm. They they were more interested in doing the job they're getting paid for than getting paid for the job that they're doing. Right. And so they weren't as cocked. They they knew they got paid to work on the car once, and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't uh, want any comebacks, and they had uh, integrity mm-hmm. right in their work. Yeah, that's a that's a key thing. I, I've worked with lots of, not lots, I've worked with a few mechanics that uh, come back. I, I remember one; he was right next to me. He used to say, "It's just another opportunity. Come back's just another opportunity to make money, <laughs> right?" Which is not, thank God, is not the the concept that is. Yeah, at every dealer, I'm not trying to say that every dealer thinks like that or whatever. It's just that was his attitude next to me, and uh, I'd be lying if I said he wasn't right there was lots of times that he got a comeback and he got more hours sold on the job and another kick of the can. And, you know, I don't endorse it. I don't, it wasn't, it wasn't good, but it, it did happen a lot. So, you know, and it happens, it happens a lot in not just dealerships. It happens a lot where people are incentivized. I, I'm going to go out and say it, you know, it, it, it does happen. Is it right or wrong? Well, it's probably wrong. But I mean, if you're on the other side of the coin and you weren't given enough time to, to, you know, diagnose it all the way to the end and you run out of time or run out of budget and somebody says, take a guess and the, and the guess was wrong. Is that really a comeback? You know, that's a, we could talk for hours on a whole other episode about what is technically a comeback because you've got the customer yeah. side, the technician side, management side, really is all three of them line up. So, you know, a comeback, if, yeah, if you, you know, change a water pump for a coolant leak and it was never the water pump, it was the, you know, fitting above it or something, that's a comeback. But I mean, you know, if you take that same car and it's like leaking out of coolant out of every frost plug, coolant hose you know the whole thing and the biggest one is the water pump and you put it on and say we'll need to be rechecked and you put the water pump in and it no longer leaks but it still has a coolant leak is that really a comeback it that's where perspective comes in so anyway not to go on a ramp but but so he wasn't the he wasn't the best shining star within your your dealership no and 
everyone everyone knew that before and also or before me starting there as well so that was yeah hence his his nickname was hack yeah but they it put a magnifying glass on you because you they probably thought you were guilty of that by association right and yet generally speaking yeah that's as i say it literally had almost literally had a target on my back when i got there then as i say i'd just go in and do my thing and mm-hmm. proved them wrong and yeah yeah so and as i said made a lot of good friends there because the the foreman we had there he's still there like just an amazing tech yeah and just an amazing person as well yeah he'd always help you out with everything he would drop everything to help you and get you to the solution that you needed Mm -hmm. or if you're bound up on something like bolt snaps in a in a frame then we got to drill it out he'll work around to get you some extra hours to yeah to get it done to compensate for that yeah well even to compensate for that if the apprentice next to you has to do it a pdi for you mm-hmm. here's an extra little bit just to yeah. compensate for you was it was it, was it a shock for you to go because i'm assuming then with when you were licensed and you went to that dealer they weren't hourly right they were probably on flat rate absolutely flat rate so i got uh two months i think my first two months was hourly yeah because i had never worked flat rate before the uh-huh. general manager knew that and he said here's I think it was like two or three months. I also had a lot of some of the training to catch up on the right. online training. So when I wasn't doing anything, do the Honda training, catch up and I can learn without having to be fast off the hop. I can mm-hmm. get to learn their processes for uh, well, knowing the product, learning the yep. processes and getting the job completed as it should be. Then after that, yeah. go uh, flat rate. Yeah. And did you, so in that first two months, cause, and that's awesome. I've, I've seen, I think I've most I've ever myself, I think was, I got two weeks when you go to a different dealer They you know, two months is awesome. I've never even heard of that in the industry. That is great that they give you t- two months. That, that shows some real, real faith in what you, how much they want you in that facility. Right. That's pretty good. Yeah. Did you find that your, was, sorry, go ahead. that was the, uh, I think that was a manager at the time. They don't have that um, manager there now. And yeah. I always had some issues with them when I was there. And But now I realize after the fact and working more in the industry, I realized he was a really good manager. And yeah. he's gone on from there, but he ran the shop as it needed to be. And it was a darn good shop. Yeah. Did you, where, did you find when you first got on that you were slow? Like the the detail driven, meticulous of the race car, did it kind of? Did you find yourself at a disadvantage trying to get some of the jobs done? Like, was there an adjustment, or did you just you had no issues getting the work done? I no, I don't think I had any issues getting the work, the work done. Because even as a race car mechanic, I knew, as I say, sometimes we are on a crunch, and mm-hmm. you know, if in between sessions we're changing transmission, so we're doing yeah. that and as fast as possible. Right. But you learn to work on a team as well. So yeah, no, I don't, uh, I was not slowed or hampered by that at all. I think it okay. actually helped quite a lot. I could do things. I yeah, do things even now the same way and it just works for you. you just get faster at that. And, yeah. You develop a process, right? If you've, if you've done that, that repair or done that removal or whatever you want to call it, that component comes out. If you have a process to do it, it's just like anything else. You're pretty fast with it, right? That's how we all do 
you know, I use tires as an example. That's how we all do tires so fast in the industry, right? Unless you're really fighting some, you know, giant ones that won't blow on the beat or, yeah, or some really thin, low-profile stuff with a, not the best machine. Because we just, who hasn't done a million tires by the time they're 10 years into the trade, right? Like, you, you all have. And that's how you just, you're. it's muscle memory, right? Like, well, that's good that you, you went into the flat rate thing. You had no issues, made money. Yeah, I made some money and, you know, starting out slow, working my way up and started mm-hmm. working more and more. And as we got to different service advisors as well, I wound up getting, you know, some better work back and more and more work back. And yeah, I started going up and doing a lot better, um, was that monetarily? So, yeah, it's and getting a, lots it's, of experience. Yeah. It's it's a some some and that's the thing. It can, that can be a big difference from one dealer to the next. How fast they progress you through, right? And I think it uh, oftentimes more than not, it's just uh, opportunities. People, you know, leave a shop and they'll take a guy from like Ooh, you've seen it, I've seen it. One minute you might be working in the service lane, just doing quick loops, and the next minute you're like, okay, you're shadowing this foreman or they might give you a bay and go okay here's we're going to give you a bunch of recalls and some and before you know it you're you're moving up pretty fast right i've seen some i've seen some guys progress pretty quick because they just they have an aptitude of being able to get that transmission out or you know those like that kind of stuff jam the the front end was really impressive to see some kids they could just they just seemed like they took to it like it was instinct you know Diag was one of those things that, like, I haven't seen one yet that came in that had a natural aptitude for it. You know what I mean? It was, it's always, it's such a process to learn. But I mean, in terms of the nuts and bolts stuff, I saw some really talented young people just seem to take to it real quick, sometimes to the detriment because they just wanted to stay doing that, you know? Yeah. Didn't want to, didn't want to learn anything else. They knew that and they could get money at that. And, yeah. right, no, my, my gas and my rent is paid for and mm-hmm. then some, and that's it. And I can just keep doing that. Yeah. I've seen transmission guys go that way. Right. They seem, and in defense of that, I think it's such a specialized thing, you know, the transmission thing, especially within one product line that once you really learn it and learn it well, yeah, it's, you get fast and you get good kind of at the same time. And then it's just, you're always, and they're in such a demand, right? Christopher, that it's like, it, it'd be really hard. I've never seen a transmission guy stop being a transmission guy until physically his body, you know, the lifting yeah. was just too much. The rest of the time it's like, well, whatever you need to stay doing transmissions, we're going to make sure you get that, right? Like it's whether it's money or whatever, because they're so valuable, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that anybody in the dealer, I mean, yeah, guys can take them in and out. Yep. But... You know, if you've got to go in there and fix the damn thing and put it back in because warranty maybe isn't sending you a complete unit. They're just sending you, oh, you're going to go and do a torque and a front pump or you're going to do, you know, a third clutch. Well, that's complete down teardown, right? Lots of guys can take the unit in and out, the teardown and rebuild. I can't do that. I'm, would, I'd be lying if I told anybody that I could. I haven't done it since trade school. I have no interest in doing it. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't interest me. It's uh, well, uh, we had the remember the GM front wheel drive, yeah, automatics, and that's the only time I've had one apart mm-hmm. and put back together, and that was it. You know, yeah. manual transmissions, I could take those apart. Yeah, we have taken them apart and rebuilt them in my sleep. 
mm-hmm. especially Honda V series stuff. I could, okay. I could literally done those at three in the morning and had yeah. zero issues. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, it's they're Yeah. They're a different thing, right? It's, it's, I'm, I'm used to the, I'm not used to it, but I mean, I, I understand the same thing, a, a standard training inside. I understand that much better than I do. Not that I don't understand the automatic stuff, but it's just like, yeah, there's a lot going on in there. Right. Whereas if you just sliding the gear up a shaft, I, my brain does better with that. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, well, I'm, so you do, you were not specialized in a dealer then? No, we were all uh, pretty generalized. We were all like we were all capable of all doing the same yep. kind of work, and that's kind of the experience I've had at all the dealerships I've worked at. Okay, up to this point, is everyone's general. Everyone gets used to the same kind of work. Mm-hmm. Like if you're doing, you know, back in the day, we're doing the uh, Civic engines for the coolant leak, the R18 engines. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's getting their turn at doing one of those. Then when the uh, piston ring recalls came out in the Odysseys, uh-huh. everyone's getting their turn at doing that. Yep. This work sucks. You're all doing yep. it. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. All that kind of thing. That way you don't have to rely on someone, you know, if someone's off for a week or two, well, you can't not book that stuff in. Well, right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Everyone needs to be able to do the same work or understand what each other is yeah. doing as well. And no, they those, step in and help. Those repairs, I remember, like I didn't work in Honda, but I've seen the bulletins and everything else. They're pretty in depth. What they tell you how it has to get done, right? So I mean, you know, it, it's if you can, if you can wrench, you can get that job done, right, and done the way yeah. it's supposed to get done and have a successful repair. You might be slow at it, but you can get it done, you know, and that's the key thing. A lot of it, when I saw specialized dealers, just like you said, and and that's the thing I've seen is that dealerships as they get bigger guys tend to, it just seems to naturally that people become specialized within it. And I think that, I don't know if that's a car count thing that drives it where, okay, like you're, you know, we're starting to see a rash of this problem electrically and and you figured out the first one. So now every time that customer comes in with that kind of complaint, we're going to have that guy look at it. Right. And that's, I think how it goes. The problem, like you said, when it becomes specialized and it becomes specialized and there's a lot of that specialty, Sometimes those guys really have, and gals, have the dealership by at a disadvantage because they know how how valuable they are to the day-to-day. You know, if you're getting a ton of transmissions coming in, Nissan, hello, and... Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and Nissan doesn't rebuild, does not rebuild them, at least in Canada, we don't rebuild them much. You know, it's straight re and re's. But... I've seen, I've talked to guys when I was at my Nissan tenure where they were in the dealerships in the States. And it, when they started to roll out the the rebuilding plan for them, which didn't work, the guys that did a lot of them became very specialized and in high demand within the dealer. And they were then used it to their advantage for, for a pay bump. So that's what I saw within my experience at the dealership because we were in a big one in Ottawa, like 20 techs. Uh, guys were just naturally specialized. And then... What would happen is if, you know, your front end guy was gone, front end really slowed down in terms of getting the alignments done, getting in front of because he was gone on holidays, he was off sick or whatever. It really, it's a different way of thinking about it, you know, and I, other shops, I think they deal with it all the time. I think even everybody doesn't realize sometimes how specialized anybody can be in a shop. Even if you're not specialized, you might just be better at one thing than your coworkers. 
So when you're still gone, there's still a gap there. But I, I'm on the fence about whether people should specialize or not. You know, I think it's, if it's lucrative, you should, if it's not lucrative, well, you know, maybe go to some place that it is. Cause I think it's, I think we all are naturally predispositioned to certain things we do better than others. Some guys read a wiring diagram really good. Uh, but if they had to rebuild a tranny, they'd suck. That's uh, me putting my hand up. Uh, other guys are really, really good at, you know, faster doing an engine. Uh, they, but they struggle with reading a wiring diagram, you know? So I think specialty can be, can be a plus. So, but you guys weren't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, it, it certainly can be, but I think, yeah, we always try to, everyone got whatever they got. Yeah. We learned the product. And if we're having problems with something, ask anyone else in the shop and they'd, they'd help. There was, I yeah. think, six or seven of us that were licensed up there. Okay. And maybe about three apprentices and a couple of lube jockeys because they had the quick lane down below, yeah. which was just oil changes. So everything greater than an oil change came up top. Right. But we were all there to help each other, especially, uh, let's say, our shop foreman was Ken mm-hmm. Nishitoba and uh, Lottie, who was, I think he'd been working there for probably about 15 years from Slovakia before that, yeah. like a bull just keeps on doing work, but he's he's done everything and he can at least mm-hmm. help guide you yeah. the way you should. Very familiar with the product, right? Yep. Yeah, that's such a such an advantage when you spend a long tenure. You know, you see a whole development, right, of, of the product from when it's a conception to when it's <laughs> 12, 13 years old. And it's, you know, on its last legs, you know it so well. You know, I joke about the caravans, right? I've seen, when I worked there, I saw three different generations of caravans. So, I mean, you get to know a caravan pretty good. <laughs> so, still my favorite vehicle to work on by far. Nothing even comes close. So they're just a level of familiarity. I mean, they're garbage. They really are. They're a hot garbage, but they're making so much money. Oh, just money makers. Right. But Honda was like that back in the day too. Right. Like everybody I knew that had that worked in a Honda dealer, uh, you couldn't get them to leave it. Like it just seemed like the customers really love the cars. Honda was very pro maintenance, very, you know, I don't want to say regimented, but it seemed like the people selling the car made it a point to say this thing has, you know, it's not your dad's Chevy. It's, it's a Honda and it needs to be maintained and here's the schedule and you should be doing it here. And, and people just went, okay, great. You know, I get a timing belt done and you know, my ex, uh, her grandparents were diehards. I mean, they drove nothing but Hondas for like 25 years and they were all like first name basis with everybody in the dealership. And it was just when it was there, they knew, okay, next year is going to be my, they were booking their timing belt services like a year out just so that, you know, they could definitely get it in and get it done. That was, they were that maintenance yeah. was that important to them. I wish every customer was like that. So they yeah, were great. The, the Asian cars, um, mm-hmm. very maintenance heavy, which is kind of good for a tech. You just, you know, yeah. you're guaranteed to get some work in as long as they do the maintenance, but some people's yeah don't get the maintenance thing of, you know, keeping the car running, just not just fixing what's broken, but keeping it from breaking on you in the first place. But Hondas were so resilient back then, right? Like they were a great car for people that even neglected them. 
because they oh, still yeah, you, would, you know. As long as you keep the oil, and just check the gas, top up the oil, and away you go. Yeah, yeah, great cars. Toyotas too, right? Nissan, not so much. <laughs> Mazda, right. not so much. Uh, Mazda, the latest to last since they bought themselves out from Ford, at least, has gone quite up. I mean, we're we don't at mm-hmm. least in our little market here, we don't see a whole lot, especially under warranty. We get you know the occasional cylinder head leak, and right now yeah. we're dealing with valve seals on the turbo engines. But oh, okay, that's uh, but not a whole lot, especially at least in our little market, because they're a lot of our customers are good with the maintenance and getting that done. Mm-hmm. When, did you, when did you? When did you? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, said when you get some people that are new to the Asian cars and the heavy on the maintenance, like, well, I never had to do that with yeah, you know, whatever I owned before. Oh, no, no, just just because you didn't do it didn't mean you probably shouldn't have done it. Right. Yeah. But that's a argument yes. for a different day with them. If you had a Chevy Cruze and then you go into like a you know a Honda or a Mazda, yeah. It, you don't do necessarily a lot of maintenance on a Chevy Cruze because it's a Chevy Cruze. It's like going to be a pile no matter what you do to it, right? But, yeah. you know, a quarter Civic or Camry or Corolla or something like that, they're worth doing the maintenance because, you know, back then at least they built a car that could go a million, right? I don't yeah. I don't know if GMs ever build a car that goes to a million. Trucks maybe, but certainly not a car. <laughs> <laughs> so you stayed at Honda for how long? I think I was there until uh, February of 2015. I left there and went, because I had bought a house in the next town over, Lindsay. Yeah. Then got myself a job at the, or an offer I kind of, I couldn't refuse at the Kia dealership there. Uh-huh. I mean, it was a five bucks an hour um, bump and pay. Yeah. And, you know, three minutes door to door. So, I mean, it was hard hard not to do that yeah and, uh, i uh, missed the guys that i was working with like i was leaving with a heavy heart i was leaving with i was leaving because i had a lot of personal issues that had kind of mm-hmm. built up yeah then which we can get to in a bit which is the core of what's made me like who i am now and okay as a tech especially but uh yeah for the five dollars an hour bumper and pay and uh two minutes door to door yeah and no weekends that was kind of a no-brainer yeah, I uh, I graduated from from Sanford Fleming and Lindsay in like nineteen ninety. Nice. Cross campus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, so my uh, my brother might have been no, he was at uh, Trent U, probably about okay. then. Yeah. And then he went to the Frost was, campus after that. So the the town is a lot different now, <laughs> Lindsay, from when I was there. A lot different. So. I think a lot of a lot of the small towns in this area, even that area, are a lot different now. Even Coburg now was yeah. used to be like a nice, clean, mm-hmm. quiet town, and now it's just rife with the, uh, you know, the drug-addled mess in the downtown. Well, the city keeps getting bigger, and people keep moving out. Right? It's the same. It happened the yeah. same in Ottawa. It's happening in my city too. Right? We're getting a lot yeah. of people moving moving east or west from the two big cities that I'm in the middle of, right? Ottawa and Toronto, and they wind up in yeah. Kingston. That, yeah. It's uh, not not that they're not welcome. We're not trying to say that. It's just it's, it's it's Lindsay was a cool cool little town when I was there in you know late nineties and uh, quiet, pretty, 
you know, and now I, I still haven't been back to Lindsay. I was in Peterborough last summer. That's where I bought my, I ended up buying my Wrangler there. But even like Peterborough looked so different than, oh, than what I remember. Yeah. So it's changed, um, man. Yeah. How was that? You probably didn't have any issues transferring from Honda to Mazda. Nope. As I say, when I went to Kia or Lindsay, I was at a Kia dealership. Then, oh, uh, sorry, right. Yeah. Then, no, it's say like Asian cars are Asian. Yeah. I say Asian cars are Asian cars. So yeah. You can only put so many, play, so many things in so many places. They're all mostly the same. The only thing that changes is your service info a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it, really. Yeah. And the customer base changes a little bit, especially in Lindsay. But yeah, we always had lots of work. And the manager um, I knew from Honda, she had been a, a service advisor there and mm-hmm. went to be the service manager at the Kia dealer. So that's that was my in there. She knew how it yeah. worked and right. gave the offer. And that was that. Yeah. Different different level of quality on a Kia versus a Honda, though. The way the car is. Yeah. Which sometimes brings in a different customer. I, I found they get a bad rap really key and high end day, but I mean, for what you pay, you get a pretty good car. I think, you know, like you're getting, you're getting a lot crammed into that yeah. car nowadays for not a lot, but I think the, uh, where that falls short is repairs at the end. Mm-hmm. Some of their parts are ungodly expensive for yes. almost yeah. no apparent reason. Yeah. Oh, and I, I think it's just a supply issue. It seems like every time we need something from Kia or Hyundai from a dealer, and it has to be a dealer, it's like a week out before we can get it. And then the yeah. same thing would be like it. You, you'll need a door latch, and it's like three hundred and fifty bucks, and it's going to take a week to get there. And you're like, it's a door latch for like a fourteen Sportage, right? Like, I mean, why does it cost so yeah. much money? Like, oh, just it is what it is. Okay, and one for our Mazda threes is a buck and a quarter. Like, Imagine, eh? Yeah, how do yeah. I make that work? <laughs> Something. <laughs> yeah. So, when you talk about the what made you the kind of tech that uh, you are, you're not just speaking about the race car thing. Then, do you want to elaborate on that? That I can, and that's kind of the core of me mm-hmm. being here. Maybe called a a bit of a therapy session, but uh, I mean, in the last, mostly in the last four to five years, I've I mean, changed as a person, I've changed, which I think has also helped change me as a mechanic, not just my, you know, like how I work on the car and the work ethic and whatnot, but it's just my attitude to the industry as well. Right. As like when I first started as a licensed tech at the Honda dealer in 2013, I gave myself five years and Mm -hmm. like, I'm doing this, I got to get out. I don't like the industry, but. Yeah. I mean, mostly I realize nowadays what I mostly what I don't like or didn't like was myself. I've hated myself and I've had a lot of issues with dealing with people and mm-hmm. you know, being pushed around and being overshadowed and like you know, yeah. brought down, but that's ever since I was a little kid. Right. And you know, always feeling different and feeling I say just beat down and kept aside. So I've always have kept to myself, you know, up until meeting my wife and uh, starting a family, you know, a couple of weeks before that I'd have sold my house, uh, sold everything I had and been glad to move to the middle of nowhere. Right. And 
not talk to anyone, get out of the industry, get out of life in general. And, and, uh, you know, since having the family, well, now I've got to provide for them. Now I've got two kids, but just, just after the birth of our first kid, sorry, no, <laughs> struggling for a word here. Thoughts. Um, well, I was, sorry, as my wife was looking at our son thinking something might be like slightly off then like he's he's a little delayed a little Mm -hmm. here and there right now he's like a happy wonderful child right but as we get along he's you know missing some marks whatnot that i'm but i'm looking at him thinking there's nothing wrong he's me yeah yeah and i'm i'm sitting there literally looking at a carbon copy of myself and as we find out years a couple years later he's even i'm thinking yeah i'm I don't want to admit that it's something's off and because that's would also be admitting that something's off with me. Right. But as we get him, we got him tested and he's uh, has ASD, which is autism spectrum yeah. disorder. Yeah. Which nowadays that's, oh, I don't want to say fairly common, but it's very well known, very able to deal with and whatnot. I, I I'm know. Still looking at, yeah. I know so many mechanics in the industry. So many with um that are either on it or have children that are on it and in it whatever is, is how you're supposed to say it and um from varying varying different levels and it's uh it's fascinating to to see how it's a, just another thing that we in this industry have in common right and that we can kind of find uh, support with you know yeah that's probably where a lot of the attention to detail mm-hmm. can come in to being yeah. able to focus on yep. stuff. And that's where it clicks in your head. Yep. Like, oh. Yeah. But you don't realize it until later on. But as I'm, you know, watching my son run around, like that's me. And then I realized, well, that's, you know, back in the eighties. Yeah. Growing up as a kid, cause I'm, I'll be 40 here in a couple of weeks that, you know, ASD almost didn't exist. You were Asperger's right. or, non-functioning that a lot of that didn't exist you were just a troubled child or shy or yeah you know hyper too much sugar yeah your diet was all wrong that's what we used to say like when we had super hyperactive kids when i was coming up we always just all their 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 parents just load them up on sugar and then send them to school it didn't matter what they ate they were just hyper uh lucas lucas is a hyper hyper person (laughs) And and then David is is the completely opposite. David is, uh, you want to talk about a guy that understands detail and thinks on a on a on a different level? That's him. The two of them together are, a, a, it's a magic couple. They are phenomenal together and what it, they achieve and is. what they do. But it's so neat to see how they're so different, right? Like, so cool. I I don't. I mean, it's. I'm just starting to to meet more people that that their children have it right, and it's fascinating to me to see it you know because it's like i mean i've even 30 years ago they would have said well that you just you you know you spank that out of the kid right and we know that, that you can't do that it doesn't work that way it's no you know then yeah you were either a troubled child or in school they would just you know pass you on to the next teacher and on to the next mm-hmm. teacher and on to the next teacher mm-hmm. and then try yeah. and pass you through and you know um but realizing that now that's looking at him, that's why I was the way I was and how I felt all through life. And once I realized, you know, really accept that, I was like, 
I was kind of weighed off my shoulder. Like I've, I've got a uh-huh. reason now, you know how you always look, you get a troubled car. It's not like a yeah. bag of hammers, go to the selector problem. You want to dig for that problem. And that was, I dug for that problem and it cropped up. And so it became almost like a superpower. It becomes a superpower for you then really, instead of a hindrance, right? If you'd learn how to direct it, it's a strength. It does. And that's exactly what I've been able to do the last, you know, few years, especially and you know, turn my life around. Like when I started, once I moved down to the Mazda dealer, I was, you know, I was a bit of an asshole. I had an attitude, but I had, you know, anger outbursts and whatnot, but I've had those, you know, the last 30 years before that. And now, now knowing why, or having a bit of a reasoning to it, I've had an attitude change and I've had the personality change click in me and like, all right, let's, let's work with this. Let's, let's change this now. And, and it's been a good, I think I've been there six years. So at least the last, well, but since four old since four now, so the last four years have been like really good. And so once you learn the industry, yeah, one, it's once you learn how to harness it, then right, you can kind of you can get control of it and 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 use it to your I don't want to say your advantage, right? But I mean, you can you can kind of get on that wave set waveform of mindset and and then knock out some pretty compl- complicated stuff, right? When you're detail oriented like that, I'm not. I I'm am I detail oriented somewhat, but I'm still of like you know that okay, I I don't really care. I just need to get it done. Right. That's more my mentality. Close enough. (laughs) Yeah. Not, and I'm not a hack, but it's just, I'm, you know, as I've done this so long now, I can still remember what I did to fix it, but I don't necessarily even remember why. I just remember my body clicks to that symptom, that sound, whatever. I immediately go to that part of the car really quickly check if it's the exact same thing that I can remember from my memory bank. And then most of the time it is, you know, so it's not detail driven that way. It's detail that I can remember details, but I don't think about it like detail process. You know what I mean? So I remember the detail that failed, but you know, my whole process is not detail process. It's like throw a whole bunch of things at the board and see what sticks. So in a roundabout way, it's not, it's just, I've told people all the time, like, you know, if you watch me diagnose a car, you'd be like, oh my God, how does he get anything done? But it's just, it's a, I can't describe it. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a lot of intuition and a lot of, I, I spend a lot of time looking at data and wiring before I tend to even put a tool on a car. So I spend so much time looking at data now, not as much as probably some of the other guys, because I don't get as much of that work, but even on a diagnostic, I'll stare at the scanner for 40 minutes. People go 40 minutes, like, but yeah, that, you know, why do I need to, <clears throat> if, I, if the scanner will tell me what it's doing, I don't have to rip that corner of the harness out. You know what I mean? If the scanner is okay. like, <clears throat> and it's just little things like that. And I work with other guys and they immediately go to the component, flip it over, look at it, unplug it, whatever. Oh, there's no green goo there and it goes somewhere else. I'm looking at the scanner going all the time or whatever going, okay, well, it's, that's normal. That's working. I don't even need to go touch that. You know what I mean? It goes somewhere else. Yeah, so. move on. You've, you've already checked that off. Nope, 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 nope. So it's, or... 
but it, it's it's a, such an intuition thing for me and an emotion thing that sometimes they're like you know you're 20 minutes ago you're at the back of the car and now you're at the front yeah i know but i'm just like i got a hunch so don't be like me is what i'm trying to say <laughs> be more detail driven <laughs> so yeah so you kind of just got comfortable with it and then so how did your skills really improve or is it fair to say they did i think they have i mean the the actual I mean, ground as i call it ground and pound working on cars I mean doing brakes doing suspension that's mm-hmm. what and i I always did find that I did struggle with, especially electrical diags. I love them, but I felt I right. sucked at them. It took forever and never quite knew where to go. Right. And I was actually working on one of our problem cars at Mazda. Like our service info wasn't, doesn't really help me with the symptoms mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the classic YouTube. And of course I came across a scanner Danner video yeah. on exactly the car I was working on, exactly the problem. It was a bit of a silver bullet, but that opened my mind to, what the hell have I been doing? Like I, <laughs> I know nothing, and I need to know more. So I and can can you reference what car it was and what video? It was a Mazda three. Okay. That was a tow in. They had it as a tow in from an auction car or something, and uh-huh. it was the rotted out ground on the oh yeah ECM relay. Yep. Which nowadays I go. I've done quite a few of those. Yep. Now to repair it, like oh yeah, it's it's that. But I've also done as he did tested the mm-hmm. went and tested and exactly as he did like that's it and that's when that kind of set off the fire in me to all right i don't know as much as i should and i want to know a lot more and that yeah. will help me be a an even better technician and just a better asset to myself and to the company and because yeah. i snowballed from there i find that and you might find it too right like Paul is huge in the industry, right? I mean, like, we can't say that enough. He, he he gets mad. I mentioned him, and it seems like just about every video. But, I mean, he's just that. He's had that much of an effect. But what's weird with Paul is that there's not, like, the guys that seem to work on all makes and models know Paul. But a lot of the dealership guys, right, if I talk to my dealership friends, maybe only half of them know about Paul, right? Because it's it's a different way of thinking, right? The dealership, we pattern failure and you you might know a guy on YouTube that is a dealer tech and he's, you know, not killing it. So you tend to follow him, but you're not interested. Some dealer techs are not interested in other makes, other models. They don't care, right? I'm just here to make my money and show me how to fix my car faster. I make more money. What I was the same way. I didn't find Paul until I was after I was out of the dealership. And, uh, and then I've gone back into the dealership and out again and in and again and out. And um, but he everything that he has ever taught transfers to anything you ever work on. That's the beauty of Paul, right? So it does. I think it uh, seeing him and then even that video, then watching as much as I possibly could on YouTube until I bought a subscription. Yeah. To the premium. And that kind of saved my you know career mm-hmm. as a technician i think that drove me further and like i need to know more and yeah as i say it applies to everything it applies to our mazdas we have a used car department when we we're running out of mazdas to sell we got nothing we're getting toyotas and dodges and yeah you name it coming in i gotta work on them yep i gotta fix them so we can sell them so i gotta know how to work on those so isn't it amazing isn't it amazing though? You're you're almost like I want to say probably a master level like OE trained technician, 
right? But a guy like Paul and his platform can, and it's not just you, it's, it's countless thousands of, of guys exactly like yourself. They see one of his videos and then they realize there's more levels to this. I can level up in, in my, in my abilities and my, like, it's so, we'll never say enough about what he's done for, for the industry. He doesn't even realize it. He, he, he has an idea, but he doesn't realize he's, does, he's too humble. But that's, that's what's so amazing, right? Is when I meet guys like yourself and other people and they talk, they talk about him. It's the same thing. They were excellent mechanics, right? On that product line. And then he's still able to teach them. You're trained by how the, the OE wants you trained, right? You, you do it the way the OE wants you to do it. And then you meet a guy like him and he turn, totally turns the world upside down with showing you how to do it so much faster, so much more efficient, right? And you don't even think about it because you're just, you know, I, I, I read the flow chart and I do the testing the way they want and all that kind of stuff. What he's been able to teach us has like made us all so much better, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. So that I was you too. That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, like I was, you know, at the mass dealer, you know, learning the business, learning the, a bit of the front, like the, the service end of things, mm-hmm. you know, from the management point, I was trying to work in my way, say not working my way there, but trying to understand more of the management yeah. end of things yeah. so that I can be a bit more of a better shop foreman sure. here in yeah. a few years as we, as we grow and can move myself off the flat rate and in, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's helped me just as a tech so so much. Yeah, yeah. gives gives you direction, right? A lot direction, of direction you didn't even just, know. Yeah, direction you didn't even know. And, and way, ways of thinking. Yeah, as well, just some better ways of thinking about things. And now they can ask me a problem. There, it's like, oh well, check this and this and this, and mm-hmm. have them go off and check it. Oh yeah, it's around that. This is a it's now second nature yeah yeah and we all think that we have good fundamentals and then you go spend a whole bunch of hours with him and you realize that your fundamentals are not that good you know like his his fundamentals are phenomenal and then other people's like that he's taught and has such a huge influence on their fundamentals are are phenomenal right but it, it, it all comes back to it's just fundamentals he keeps saying that it doesn't matter what you're working on it's it all Friggin' works just about the same, you know. If you if you learn it, you learn it. Like his his video that just dropped, he's talking about like a an E four ignition system on a Ford, like an old old Ford, and yet all the principles for an ignition system are in that video. And he's like he's, you know. And then he goes further. It's like I saw that with Lab Scope, where guys start talking about how if you were good at reading ignition waveforms on a Lab Scope, then you start to Lab Scope more and more because you get comfortable with the tool and you know a pinhole hump on an injector you can kind of think it's similar to a coil oscillation and and before you know it you're just you're comfortable you know it's uh it's so cool that way like he's just he's the gift that we'll never be able to repay back and it just keeps on giving god bless him no yeah so. and that could have that made me look i used to or never used to look at the other car videos and now Mm-hmm. That's pretty well all I do. Get home at night. I'm watching either some Scanner Danner or uh, South Main Auto yeah. or some I'm, Super Mario. <laughs> yeah. Then go to bed. Yeah. And start again. Super start Mario. The there's, over there's, again. Yeah. Super Mario. There's another cat that is just on a, on another level. Like he's just, and he's he's humble as heck too. Like he's 
he doesn't think he's anything special. He's very special, very special. So, yeah. And it's so it's that's what I love about YouTube, because I say the same thing. If it wasn't for social media and it wasn't for YouTube, I still wouldn't be doing this. Not even close. I'd be doing something completely. I'd, I'd have checked out 10 years ago. You know, it, it found me at the right time when I was stagnant. And like yourself, I was starting to get an attitude. Just unhappy. I was ground down from the from what it does to you, right? Of, of always trying to make hours and production and all that kind of stuff. And if I hadn't have found a couple of Facebook groups where I could just network with other people. And uh, if I hadn't found Paul to show me really what I didn't know, you know, and how to become better and give me, cause it was through what I learned from him that gave me the confidence to, to keep doing this because in a very short period of time, I learned from him uh, that a lot of people weren't, didn't know what he was teaching. Right. They'd always gotten by the other way with an identifix or, you know, parts cannon. And I learned how yeah. to actually test things from him. And then, uh, then my attitude improved, but my ego got worse. You know what I mean? Cause then I was like, yeah. I don't care that you're 55 and I'm 35. You couldn't fix that car and I could. So, you know, away with you, you peasant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and it's so, I owe, I owe so much to, to social media, right. And, and to, to him and, and to that, to that platform, you know, it's been the, it's yeah. been the best thing that has happened to this industry without fail. Guys hate it. I, I, YouTube and me, sometimes I'm, I'm tired of seeing people, you know, teach customers, sorry, teach the public how to fix their own car. I'm not behind that. I know I won't will be, or I never will be, but man, the, there's no excuse for not knowing how something works because you've got a free, it's like having a free encyclopedia to the whole world at your fingertips on how something works and how to like, it's just an amazing. It's an amazing tool. Use it properly. People. Yeah, it so, absolutely is. And yeah. So, so what do you have an exit strategy? Like you're talking about, you're understanding the, the business side of it a little more. I find that the more I network with owners and the more I network with advisors, and it's not necessarily uh, an exit strategy, but it's helped me be a better mechanic because I understand better why, you know, things have to be done a certain way or why sometimes we only have the money you know, the, the time restraints that we have, right. We, we understand it better. I appreciate it better. It's there's, it's still a very strained relationship for sure. But is that, it's kind of what you want to, is that your exit strategy is to get, you talked about, you're the foreman now, right? Yeah. I'm uh, you know, for, I say lack of a better term, I am the for, foreman of our shop. I mean, given that we only have four people and I'm yeah. responsible for the back half Right. So I'm uh, teaching the techs or the apprentices, you know, guiding them on their work, helping them with their work, saying, yeah. you know, showing them the ropes and help them with stuff, trying to teach them things the right way. And with our young tech as well, he's asking questions. I'm answering as best I can and yeah. we're getting the process down. And I also talk with our hunter guy, some of our other reps, and deal with mm -hmm. broken equipment in the back. Yeah. I mean, all that was still trying to make my hours, which sometimes was, gets a little strained, but yeah, it does still works in my favor 
quite a bit because they know up front what I'm doing mm-hmm. and they understand the strain of that. So I do. And as I be in my 20 years experience, I do get a lot more of the bigger jobs as I'm more capable of doing yeah. that. Yeah. We do need to feed our, you know, feed some of those to the younger tech mm-hmm. and get him experienced, but get him experienced the right way when he's comfortable doing it. And when, when we have yeah. the time to afford that as yeah. well. So he doesn't get absolutely drowned underwater on a big job and lose his butt, you know, flat rate. You want to be able to get them on some of the bigger jobs when they can learn to do it right, be meticulous about it, you know, see the shortcuts, see the process. And they're not so focused on, my God, like this is only paying eight hours. I started on a Monday, it's Thursday. You know what I mean? Yeah. Jobs like that, right? It's everybody, every flat rate tech has a memory like that where it was like they knew that that engine re and re was only going to pay 12 hours and they started on monday morning and they were in the worst week of their life and they fired it up on thursday afternoon right and then they're just like they're just you're so at that point you're just like feels like you're chewing nails you know it's a terrible feeling in there but you know we're always told well you make it up on the next one right or you so that's because i was going to ask you so you're still you're still flat rate as a foreman uh, yeah, I am still flat yeah. rate as a as a foreman. If you know, as we hopefully grow the way we want to in the next couple of years, would be nice. the idea is for me to move to a salary position, so it's not as a uh, strained. Yeah, yeah. But they look after you by the sounds of it, right? Like they give you some work that you can knock out really fast to keep your hours up because yeah. they know the- you're you're pulled away a lot to to help and mentor yeah no they they absolutely do it's um been great it's a we've developed a really good relationship with our service advisor service manager who's i think even just a few years younger than i am right and we have a new within the last i want to say four or five years part or a, a new half owner slash general manager who he understands our plight a lot better than yep some others so he he gets us he lets us kind of rule the roost as we need to and so let, we get stuff ask, done we make a lot let me ask you a question kind of a two-part question do you think a service manager ha- like has to have been a tech to be a good service manager i'd say not necessarily mm-hmm. uh it, it would certainly help okay uh in our case I think he, our service manager, I think he went through the first year, but then um, dropped out of that. I think he dropped out of the uh, the program. But right. his dad was uh, only recently retired from the Toyota dealership in our town and also okay. had a side business. So in the evenings, he was working on other customer cars and our service manager being his son, you know, was a 10, 12, up to 16-year-old kid. It's pushing cars in and out and helping them work on them at night. So mm-hmm. he had a very good working knowledge of how cars work and he can work on cars. Yeah. You know, for a slam, he'll bring a car in and do an oil change or put on some gloves and yeah, help rock out a brake service or a brake replacement, you know, whatever he needs to. <coughs> yeah. Cause it's, I've seen foremans wind up as managers. Right. And then, but I've also worked for guys that, they hadn't been like they were a manager, but they hadn't 
turned a wrench on a car in 20 some years, you know? And I think that there is at that point, it becomes a disconnect, right? The foreman that becomes a manager like yourself, it's not that it's not ancient history, right? Like it, when, yeah. if you, if you make it to that role of manager and get and move past the, the foreman role, it won't be that far removed, but I've seen some managers that, like I said, it'd been 20 years since they'd been a wrench they, that they, you know, and they were definitely disconnected. Definitely disconnected. Yeah, why, why is that break job taking that long? And whereas yeah. if you were a recent tech, you know why it's taking mm-hmm. the, that's not, yeah. and you can at least work around them or help them out with that rather than saying, get it done now, get it done now. Cause it's got electronic parking brakes on it and they're not working the way it's supposed to, to get me into the service mode. That's why it's taking so long. Like, and then they go, huh? Like, yeah, because the only understanding you have it is that you push a button and that's how the parking brake works. Like, you've never actually had to physically see, you know, what's going on and you're trying not to break the module and so on and so forth. Or you're having to, you know, the scan tool won't communicate. So now you got to find a fuse and, you know, customer just wanted a brake job done. And then you realize that, like, the things you can't do the brake job because you can't get the parking brake to work. Yeah. Stuff like that is completely lost on them. So, like, just like, for them, it's another work order and it's another, why didn't it go right to you? It's, you knew from, you know, the jump that it was going to be a bugger. And sometimes you don't get the help with that, right? The understanding. Yeah. So that's the disconnect when I speak of it. That's what drives me crazy. So, yeah, that, that can be, and that, it's certainly not a case of where I am right now. Mm-hmm. I would say he's, they'll jump in and work on a, help yeah. you get that brake job out. He's helped yeah. me, you know, after doing a valve seal job and to pull in a four wheel brake job and, you know, the two of us crank that out and yeah, under an hour. So yeah. you know, we have a very good working relationship. That's, that's fantastic. That's for the guys that are listening. And, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of owners and a lot of managers and shops that, that do that same thing. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not, you know, maybe, maybe give it a whirl sometimes. I think I've heard of different shops and different dealerships and they, they've had the process where you shadow somebody in a completely different department for a day or a week or whatever. Right. And I used to think, Oh hell, that would be a, that'd be torture. But I think it would really be good because I mean, if you took somebody that had been a manager, but never actually have been a wrench, right? They're just a management, their HR skills are phenomenal, whatever you want to call it, but they'd never wrenched on a car. Well, imagine them being in, in the in the service base for a week, watching what gets done and how it gets done. I can't think that there's any possible way they don't come away with a much better appreciation for what's going on. Same as like really good tech should spend a week as an advisor shadowing that. Then you're going to really understand how what a grind that job is because some days you don't get one person that even wants to smile at you. Everybody's mad. Everybody's PO'd, everybody's cranked because the car's broken under warranty and I, God, like, you know, it's such an inconvenience and all blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It helps you appreciate that sometimes why the, the, the relationships are so strained sometimes between an advisor and a tech and an advisor and, you know, you understand it better. We're, we've got an upcoming guest, uh, Chris Craig from TikTok. If I don't know if you're on TikTok or not, but he's, he's the, the service advisor that's famous on TikTok for having these conversations with himself playing two different roles, technician advisor about, you know, can you not just do it for three tenths or free or whatever? Well, 
he was a fantastic episode because when you hear his backstory and you hear his trials, what he went through, you forget he's an advisor and he's not like he, he's got all the same plight, all the same problems that the mechanics went through. He's just working a different role. It was really good to talk to him and everybody's going to love that episode when it comes up. But I, I wish now that my shop is so small. I don't really have, you know, I talk to a lot of customers, a lot, a lot of them come in and they just hand me the keys and I don't even go see the manager. They just tell me and then I hand it off to him. And I, but I wish back in the day, maybe when I was in a bigger dealership that I'd spent more time, actually, if I'd had that opportunity to shadow them for three or four days, and I would have really understood better, been more sympathetic to what they go through, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a, a different role, especially if, yeah, you're in, if you're in a bigger metropolitan area, mm-hmm. like let's say with us, you know, our town is you know, 20,000 people in this town and that's just enough people in a town for me. Yeah. <laughs> and with our dealership being small, so small now, I am also, I'm usually up talking with the customers, especially nowadays. And with my changed role, yeah. But, uh, at least with our, we have one advisor and a parts uh, person slash sometimes advisor and our service manager, and that's all we have for front mm-hmm. staff. Yep. And but they're always back. You know, we just I'm always discussing with their service advisor. You know, why I recommend this eat. Been doing it long yeah. enough together. He knows exactly why. My yeah. reason is always on the back of my work order, but he knows why I'm calling something because we know each other so well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not calling anything it doesn't need, and mm-hmm. he can sell it the way it needs to be sold because small town, you know, uh, bad news travels or oh. good news travels, bad news travels faster. Yeah. If you never hear the good. No. No. Never hear about a good thing you ever fucking did, but heaven forbid you left one smudge on someone's uh, right. front bumper or something. If you did the job right, that was just your job and it wasn't worth celebrating or bragging about, right? Telling everybody. But if you do it wrong, oh my God, the whole world's going to know about it. You know, like it's yeah. just, I've, I've never understood that. And I'm not to say that some people don't brag about us. They do. But I mean, there's more the attitude of, well, of course they did the job, right? That's their effing job. You know, but oh my God, they moved, they changed my radio preset or, you know, or they changed my battery and didn't program my radio presets back in. I'm going on the internet immediately and <laughs> complaining about, cause now it's going to take me five more minutes to put all those presets yeah. bent. If you're that, if your life is so easy, that that's the one thing that's going to cause you so much stress. I would love to be in your shoes for that day. <laughs> the worst thing that happened to you is presets lost on a radio. Yeah. Tough one. They'll always get the survey. They're always the ones that get the survey. Yep. Exactly. Oh, they're looking for it, Christopher. They're looking for it, right? Yeah. They just, they're just looking, they're checking their emails. When am I getting that survey? When am I getting that survey? Like, they're going to hear about me, them sons of bitches. Yeah. That's, uh, we could go down a whole rant about that. How I think CSI is just yeah. a dangling carrot and it's never going right. to, you know, so <laughs> those are the ones that are usually always there for the, the free coffee, the free Wi-Fi, the warranty work and to plow your survey. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's the problem. I mean, it, it's if it if we didn't have to sell cars to those people, if we only had to work on them, it'd be great. But the motivation is to keep them happy. So they buy another one. And, you know, I don't make money off of car sales. I make money off of fixing cars when I was at the dealer. And that's what I always used to say. So they can slam the survey. I get it. 
But if I fix the car and they slam the survey, because that's the other thing. They slam the survey over such stupid things. I've seen it. You know, coffee in the, in the waiting room tasted terrible. There's a, Tim Hortons, there's a Tim Hortons right across the parking lot. Like, why are you drinking our coffee when you can go to drink Tim Hortons, right? It's just, oh, I don't like Tim Hortons. But, you know, Starbucks is too far away. First world problems. I know it's rough. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> so is that do you want to become a service manager is that the no i i think i'd brought it not i don't think i'd be the best mm-hmm. at being a service manager and having to deal with all that he deals with i know he deals with far more than i'd ever care to yeah but i i do like the wrenching i do like the fixing of the cars and working with that so i don't mind working with the techs as well and teaching them yep but i think I'd probably wind up just doing that until, you know, I buy a house in the countryside and build my own little garage and mm-hmm. eventually retire away to doing that. Yeah. So, so can I understand then that that's like you might want to be a business owner in the future? Yeah, probably. It's been a consideration here in the neck in the last little bit, but that probably wouldn't be for another, you know, 10, mm-hmm. 10 15 years or so. Yeah. Till the kids are old enough and not as expensive. And yeah, who knows what the cars will be like in ten more years? That's just that's the thing oh, I Christ. keep thinking about. Like, you know, I'm I'm 48, so I definitely intend to be just about done in ten years of of working on cars. Body won't handle it. But even like it, just when I think about where we're going with the technology and the, the people that will slam surveys, I can't even imagine what they're going to slam a survey on. 10 years from now like you know what i mean like it's going to be a completely different thing completely different so it's uh the surveys kill it they really do they take the fun away so what um ours, ours are ours are pretty good here but that's again they're a small town and yeah they're literally my neighbors yeah <laughs> yeah I live here work here and I think about four doors down from my house is one of our customers mm-hmm. and my mother and my mother-in-law are customers as well. Right. Yeah. So hopefully not always necessarily the mother-in-law, but the mother, you always hope there's a good review, right? Like your mom should give you a good review. Mother-in-law, maybe not every time, but you know, nah, she's not, she loves me. Yeah. That's good. That helps. <laughs> that helps. When you say moving, where are you thinking about moving? Like, uh, Oh, more uh, countryside. So, like, if you know our area, so cold, there's Coburg and Colburn, and then kind of Grafton mm-hmm. in the middle, or Baltimore, yeah. a little north, somewhere, somewhere in the vicinity of Coburg, because my family is still here. Right. Uh, in laws are here, and that's where our core support is, and okay, all our all our friends first are. I, at first, I was thinking maybe you were thinking something really desolate, like up in the Yukon or something like that, but you know, nah. That's, that's, <laughs> It's cold up there, so and we wanted my, babysitters nearby. So, yeah, my uh, I keep thinking, making the joke that like when I'm done, I'm just going to buy an RV and I'm going to put a boat on the back of it, and I'm going to head south for the summertime. And when the weather is nice up here, I'll come back up here and fish, you know, Lake Ontario and the Great Lakes up here. But once that weather starts to change again, I'll be in you know Florida or Texas somewhere warm, and I'll just keep fishing all year long. Won't make any money. I'll be a hobo. I'll be living in, like a Walmartian, the Walmart parking lot for the boat in tow. And, uh, I came home. Uh, 
drive past one every night when I leave the shop and come past and there was there had to be like 20 RVs in the parking lot of Walmart in Kingston here and I was like wow <laughs> like you know do they travel together or like you know yeah we just got yeah. quite a few at our, the one here and I think they actually had to put a notice sometimes for no overnight mm-hmm. parking because they were getting yeah you know six or seven of the damn things and it's a fairly big Walmart yeah. but it ain't that big well and that's the thing like security. I I knew one that like I we had a, actually a former employee of the shop and she totally intended to let her apartment go in May and she was just going to park the RV that she bought in the Walmart parking lot and that's where she's going to live till like October when it got cold again so I mean when I think when they're posting like what they're saying with no overnight parking is they're really saying no squatting, right? Like we don't mind if you were just passing through and you're here one night, maybe two, but this isn't your now. Don't put it down as your mailing address or shit like that, right? Because, <laughs> yeah. You ain't got to go home, but you can't stay yeah. here. That's right. That's right. So what is there anything about the product you really don't like? Not really. I Before I started working at Mazda, I never actually really thought about Mazda. Like mm-hmm. I'd almost never remember that it was a manufacturer until I started mm-hmm. here. Uh, how I how I got the job down here is a an old friend, a former friend of mine that I was an apprentice with at Cobra Honda. Yeah. Uh, was a technician at the Mazda dealer, and they were looking for a tech. And we've been talking. And I was thinking about moving back down this way, living in Lindsay. You know, my family's down here, and I started. Uh, dating someone that was down here. Yeah. And, you know, we were thinking of moving in together. So I uh, got the job down here, sold my house up here and, or up in Lindsay, moved down here and didn't have an interview. Actually, I just sent in my resume and I'm like, do you want the job? Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> we trust, uh, we trust the other guy's judgment. Okay. Yeah. 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 But otherwise yeah. the product, you don't mind it. You like it. Like it's nothing really I, about the product. No, not really. It's it's yeah. a up and coming product. Um, I think the only say up and coming. It's been around for quite a while, and it's oh. just getting better and better, especially after the Ford years. Yeah, um, making a name for itself, and the product is getting really, really good. Mm-hmm. Like mechanically and technically, they're getting very good. We see very little problems in our area. The only problems we really see are people leave the batteries dead too long, or they're yeah, car sit for two weeks. Oh, why did that happen? Well, you let it sit for two weeks in your garage while you were not going anywhere. Yeah, it has to be used. Yeah, for sure. No, I used to say uh, all the time, right? Like Mazda always had that stigma, you know, of like, oh, it's not a Honda and it's not a, it's not a Toyota, right? So it was like it was as far as Asian was like third ranked, and I can tell you that after working on Nissan. Mazda eclipsed that all day long. <laughs> Such a oh, better, yeah. well-built product than Nissan. I fucking hate Nissans. <laughs> I, just, I just finished a clutch job in a front in a seventeen Frontier. So that's yeah. like, so it's taking me a day and a bit, like off and on, off and on. And yeah. I wanted to can hang myself oh, in the yeah. rafters because I'm working on this. There's nothing wanted to come out. It was a seventeen with sixty k on it, and yeah. everything rusted on it. Oh, they, they rust terrible. Rust terrible. Yeah awful like just, just 
just garbage. like three hours trying to get the exhaust off it. Yeah, because nothing would come loose, nothing's accessible, and it's hate myself for having to do it. But. And, that, and that's a better Frontier to buy because it doesn't have a CVT in it, right? No, it's a this is a six, uh, is a four liter six speed all wheel drive or four wheel drive. Yeah. Good truck for for yeah. a Nissan as far as Nissan trucks go. It's a good truck. Yeah, but, I don't know how they blew the clutch up in it, but that's that's their problem. Sixty-eight yeah, well, made at the clutch, probably taking no, the, the twenty-five foot boat out of the ramp. I'll, I'll say they're trying to go somewhere that a jeep can go. That's what they're doing. <laughs> that's what I'd meet. I'd meet the people. Is like, you know, you never saw too many Nissans in the trail, and they're like, "Why is that?" Because they only look like they can go there. They really can't. <laughs> it won't hold up. So you'll come out really broken if you go down the trails. Where guys are like, you know, and and I mean, I I talk a lot of crap on the product, but I mean, I I earn that right to talk on it because I worked on it long enough that I'm like, yeah, there's no hope. They're saying that they're they're finally done with CVT. They're going to go back to a as traditional as a automatic as they can possibly make. I think it's now eight speed. You know. Which maybe eight speeds in an automatic is too many with the way Ford and everyone else is having issues with their transmissions. But I mean, it'll be interesting because they, I've said that for years, they build a really good engine in terms of durable. We saw lots of them come in, no oil in them, no coolant in them, put it on coolant back in it, fix it, and it was fine. But the transmission was just junk. <laughs> It didn't matter what you did. You could you could service the damn thing every twenty thousand k. It just will not make it to one hundred and fifty without needing the training. It's just awful. And the automatics, even when they were building before the CVTs and the Frontiers, they had such crappy radiators in them that they would just make a milkshake of the transmission fluid with the cooler. And yeah. what would happen is if you caught it early enough, it was good. But we would see countless ones come in that had a brand new transmission in it. And it was already starting to slip again, and the coolant levels down again. And if you caught it early enough, but do you think so many, like a lot of shops didn't catch that? And then all of a sudden, that customer's like, well, these transmissions are terrible. Well, no, really, what was the problem was the radiator. You try to explain that to the customer, like, what do you mean the radiator? Well, it mixed it. And they're not, like, listen, if I saw, told you how many neons I saw make a milkshake of the transmission fluid, you'd believe me because they they all did it eventually. But you know, yeah, Honda's too. Yeah, but it's oh my god, right? Like every Pathfinder out there just can't keep transmissions in it. Well, if you would stop, you know, because you don't see the coolant leaking on the ground, you assume your radiator's still good. If you actually just went and changed your radio when you did your transmission, that next transmission would last. You know, but you know, customers. Yes, don't we had it. Uh, Hondas, we'd get that quite a lot with the. Yeah. The milkshake in the tranny, but change it the radiator, flush it out, flush it out. Then it was good to go. The tranny is never, ever a problem in there. Just, wow. Like the cooler is blowing up. We yeah. always, you tend to caught them just in time, like to get a bit of a drivability problem. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Need a radiator and a tranny flush, and yeah. there you go. So, what do you, when you have young people coming into your shop, young people, what do you tell them about this industry? Well, as we were just talking, there's, the whole point of this, you know, yeah, five ten years ago, I said, "Don't fucking do it." Yeah. And now I'm just like, and I tell uh, both of our young apprentices, especially our um, one that's going to his second year, who's done the OEM mm-hmm. program. He's I see him as 
me. I was like, you can make a good living at this. I, I see a lot of him in me. Like he's got yeah. the aptitude to be able to do it. He's made some dumb mistakes, but we all do. Mm-hmm. Just not thinking far enough ahead. And I've done with far enough ahead to think far enough ahead. I was like, do this. So, it, and we've had co-op kids in too. Mm-hmm. And I tell them like, if this is something you want to do, then you can do it. I would wholly endorse this so long as you're, you're in it for the right reasons. Right. Right. Do you, uh, do you think that's a better move for the young people is that they go towards a dealership versus an independent? I know that's maybe a tough question. Uh, yeah, very tough question for me because my, let's say my independent, um, days were a long time ago and that was in my, you know, early days where I don't remember a whole lot, but right. I think it, uh, I've, it's probably because I've lucked out at the dealerships that I've been at that they've been run really well and we've had a good team and I, like I know there's complete chaos dealers out there uh-huh. that you wouldn't want to go within 20 square miles of but uh, that, that's a very difficult answer or a question for me to answer on that I would say I, go to a dealer being in our area but if you go to my dealer or the one next door then you're good most of the other dealers in the town probably wouldn't recommend as much right yeah it's still very much the culture of the shop i I, i've said it all before people that know my story if i hadn't made the move from the independent to the dealer way back in like 2001 i wouldn't have made it in the industry i just couldn't make enough money the the independent wanted me they didn't just didn't pay enough they just it was just it their money wasn't there uh they wanted to pay me like 11 dollars an hour and i was a fourth year apprentice I had a ton of tool debt. I'd worked at a truck shop like two years before that where I was making $16 an hour. So all the starters, electrical, all that stuff that I could do on a truck that applied to a car, but all of a sudden I'm back to being, you know, an $11 an hour, you know, lube kid, tire kid, perform safety inspections, like tear all it down so the other guy can come over and look at it, say, yeah, your name, put it back together, right? Because we were doing safety inspections for not enough labor, so you couldn't have him tied up on it. Like, if I hadn't taken the job of the dealer, I didn't, I don't know what I'd be doing right now. I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, the dealer is not, we have a lot of people come in and it seems like it's a real negative about the dealer. And I'm not going to say one person should do one or the other. But I will say that if it hadn't been for me, I wouldn't have made it in the industry. I wouldn't have made it. So I got a lot of bad habits from the dealership. I got a lot of jaded, you know, ideas. I got, it ground me out. I'll never go back to one. But it did, there was something to be said for only having to learn one product and becoming very good at that product and working with a lot of people that were very familiar with the, that product. That yeah. there's That's the advantage, you know. Mm. Uh, the culture, like you said, you you're in a good shop with great culture. You know, you can you can be in a dealer with crap culture. I've been in those too. I've seen independent shops with great culture. I've seen independent shops with terrible culture. So okay. there's, the, the culture there's good is and more, bad everywhere. Yes, the culture is more important than whether you're a dealer or an independent. So yeah, that's what I've that's what I've strived for at making our dealership that way. I mean, it had a pretty good culture as it was, but now I'm trying to trying to further that especially with their young apprentices coming in like making it a good experience for them so they're not just yeah. just pushing a broom around and just doing all changes and getting right because that's, that's suspension work they're doing it they're calling yeah. brake work they're doing it 
that's the key, right? I mean, we're already in a shortage. So we're in a shortage of people that are leaving and we're in a shortage of it's not the most enticing thing that people want when they think about what they want to have their children do as a career or, you know, do they pick that as a job? Like you said, you only wanted to do it for five years, right? Way back when. So that's just, I'm happy that you're, you can say now that you, you would recommend it again. I can, I'm almost to the, the, yeah, I I'm there again where, people that know me me and two years ago if they'd asked me would you recommend this i just said heck no this industry is in this industry you're not going to free pass there's still a lot you've got to do there's still a lot of improvements to be made a lot of long overdue improvements but i think we're getting there so and i i really appreciate chris you coming on and and you know giving us that perspective because you know it's we need more of that sometimes i get like you know, oh, it's a jaded mechanic, and all you do is talk crap. But you know, and you showcase the people that hate this, and then what they, you know, it's a bitch fest. No, it's not. It's not meant to be that way. It's just people, just people telling stories about what they had to go through to get where they are, and you know what they think is how we fix it. That's it. You know, it's not meant yeah. to be a bitch fest. It's just so gotta gotta uh, see both sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything else you want to say in closing? No. Well, I think I'd like to quote a, a great, great Canadian philosopher who said, just remember, folks, we're all in this together. Hey, if you could do me a favor real quick and like, comment on and share this episode, I'd really appreciate it. And please, most importantly, set the podcast to automatically download every Tuesday morning. As always, I'd like to thank our amazing guests for their perspectives and expertise. And I hope that you'll please join us again next week on this journey of change. Thank you to my partners in the ASAR group and to the Change in the Industry podcast. Remember what I always say, in this industry, you get what you pay for. Here's hoping everyone finds their missing 10 millimeter, and we'll see you all again next time.